All right, if you would, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Some of you have heard that I'm about to go on vacation, and you're thinking, wow, they're really going to shorten the service. They've got him going after two songs. <clears throat> we just bumped the sermon time up. Uh, we'll, we'll have a full service, but it will be a challenge because I'm used to just looking at the clock and knowing when it gets to 11.50, I need to start wrapping it up. If that's the case, then I'm going really long, but uh, uh, we won't do that today. If you, if you would, open up to Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> and Today, we Christians are, are facing perilous times. We're really watching at an alarming rate. Our country, our homeland, abandon our religious and cultural norms, watching it dissolve right before our very eyes. Many of you are struggling, many of us, include myself, how to engage now in the political process when there seems not to be a viable option of someone who, who represents values that we would hold to. But we're at the end of ourselves as, as maybe our favorite stores are, are beginning to embrace the sexual revolution at full scale. Adding to it, our country faces serious threats from t terrorists who, who want to seek to blow us up or shoot us up. And if you talk to those in our community and you talk and you listen to the news, there's a wide range of opinions on how, how do we guard our safety. We've seen the horrors of abortion put on display over the last year. There's videos undercover unveiling the, the evil practices that our government has been involved in since Roe v. Wade of murdering innocent children just to sell their body parts for profit. We'd think, oh, well, surely with the exposure to the truth, things would begin to unravel, that that industry would be put to an end. But no, actually the opposite has happened. The powerful have silenced this exposure, and it's just kind of drifted off into forgetfulness. So they can continue to pad their pockets, continue to murder innocent lives. And I'm sure if we were to sit long enough, we could continue building this list of areas of great concerns for us as Christians living in a 21st century America. And although I'm sure we wish that we could change things, that wish that things were going in a more positive direction, the truth is, is that we're coming to reality. We're coming face with reality or at least that we are now beginning to process reality that this world is not our home. We've read that in the scripture, this world is not our home, this kingdom is not of this world, you're strangers and aliens, but for the first time we're beginning to feel it. And some of us don't know what to do. Oh no. We're struggling. But even in America, the curse of sin is very evident. 
That when we read in 1 John chapter 6 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it's been hard for us to really grasp that, that that's true. We're about to embark upon a journey that most of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been on for the last 2,000 years. We're an anomaly, Christians in America. And just now, last, I don't know how many years, but what it's going to change over the next 10, I don't know. I'm not trying to be a prophet. <laughs> but we're seeing it. And we're finding ourselves on the outside. We're not finding people we can identify with. The voices that we do identify with are silenced and put to the shelf. So how do we respond? No doubt some of us are thinking, an epic, uh, how do we uh, employ an exit strategy? How do we get out of here? Where do we go that we can have things the way they used to be? Well, I'm not so sure that place exists. And even if it does, the problem is, is the curse of sin resides in our heart and it would only be a limited amount of time before that place is tainted as well. Others may be tempted to compromise. Let's just join the rest of the team. Let's just join the rest of the direction of the country. Uh, you know, why resist? This is just how it is. Let's make the best of it. The scriptures don't allow either of these options. They don't allow a retreating, nor does it allow a compromise. Instead, Jesus calls us to be light in the darkness. Jesus calls us to be salt that preserves that is something that, 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 that brings flavor to the world dying around us. Jesus calls us to be ministers of good news. That we're to go and give some news that people would hear and it would be welcoming. It would be good things. Namely, we are to go out and tell people that there is a just and good king who will make everything right. Isn't that what the world is looking for? Who's going to solve the problems of this world? And as I think of the technological advancements, thinking about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I get news alerts on my phone from CNN and Fox News letting me know of every significant event that has occurred. And you would think with all the technological advancements, all the reporters that we have around the world, that we begin to actually be able to change things. But you know what has happened? It's actually just revealed reality to us. This world is broken. And the world is looking for answers or looking to leaders. Who's going to fix these problems? And we come in with a totally different message. Oh, we are looking for a leader, but he is one who is coming not from among us, but he is coming from heaven. And he is coming to make things right. And for as long as the Lord has us on earth, it is our ministry to attend to these things. Oh, the world may be crumbling around us, but we stand upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And our mission does not change as the world changes. So this morning, as we come to Acts chapter 14, I want us to keep these things in mind. Because what we have before us in this passage is just a beautiful illustration of what the mission, what the ministry looks like. We're getting on the tail end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They were commissioned from the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. 
They were sent out. In, verse, in chapter 13, and now they are completing their task of, of taking the gospel to unreached peoples in their area. And as we look in chapter 14, as they, they kind of close off their missionary journey, we're going to discover four components to gospel ministry. And I want to propose that these are the components that should be made up and be reflective of our church, of us as individuals. What does it look like for us to engage in gospel ministry? Because as the world changes, before our very eyes, this is opportunity. This is opportunity to present a clear alternative. The only alternative. The darkness, as it gets darker, only makes the light brighter. And now this is the time for us to let our light shine. To clearly draw the line in the sand and say, here, this is what we're talking about. Because as the world separates from us, we can more clearly distinguish the message that we want to bring to the world. We're going to look at four components to gospel ministry so that we may point people to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I hope that this will shaken us up a little bit because we seem a little tired this morning. And, and wake up because we have a mission to complete. And here's the first component to gospel ministry. And that is gospel ministry proclaims Jesus. You might be saying, duh. Yeah, that's right. Let's go back to the basics, but I hope to, to bring some profundity to this as well. We look here in verses 1 through 7 in Paul and Barnabas. They're now at Iconium, another uh, Gentile city. And they enter together into a Jewish synagogue, just as they always seem to be doing. They go into a Jewish synagogue and they preach Jesus. Now when we think of synagogues, we, we don't really have a concept for them because we don't see them regularly around us. But in the ancient world, synagogues were not just a place of worship, a place of prayer, that on the Sabbath, the Saturday, that they would gather together and have a, a service similar to ours where the scriptures would be read and expounded and people would pray and praise God. But the synagogues had a broader purpose as well. As one scholar writes, they were designed for attentive listening. These were lecture halls, if you want to put it that way. And beyond that, they would use such places for the purposes of public meetings, the collection of alms, adjudication, higher learning, disputation, local administration, and hospitality. And this would vary from place to place depending on the needs and resources and aspirations of a local community. In other words, the synagogue served as community centers for the Jewish people in that particular city. It would be the place that looked like the public square, the town hall, where community life would flourish. It looks like that Paul entered where ideas were dialogued, where ideas would be exchanged, where communication would occur. And for us, that looks like us going to the places where we can speak and, and give a voice of Christ to the world. But notice what Luke records for us in verse 2, or the end of verse 1. They went into these synagogues and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Let me ask us, are we speaking in such a way? 
that people can believe the message. And that's where I want us to just see we need to have bold proclamation. Bold proclamation of who Jesus is so that the world may clearly understand what we're saying. Now, what did they say? It doesn't say exactly. But here's how Luke usually works in, in the book of Acts. He'll give us a speech. And last Sunday we saw Paul's sermon abbreviated, but we got a, a gist of his sermons that he would give when he'd go into a synagogue. But Luke doesn't repeat it every time. It's already a long enough book. And so he, he's wanting us to put the pieces together. Oh, Paul came in and began preaching Christ. Particularly Christ's life, his death, his being handed over to, to Pilate and the Jews delivering over to the Romans and them crucifying him and burying him. But then he would use this to, to, to turn the tables and say, but God raised him from the dead. And we say, oh yeah, yeah, we know that story. But raising him from the dead vindicated the message that he came to speak. That God gave his stamp of approval that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in the Jewish ears, they would hear that and they would say, oh, this is God's beloved son who was raised from the dead. He's the, he's the king of David. He's this leader who is to come and we have crucified him. And so Paul would put the connect, uh, connect the dots and let them know that if this Jesus whom you killed and God raised from the dead and is vindicated and he is now the Davidic king sitting on the throne, then he is the one by whom the promises of God to offer forgiveness of the sins comes. And he is the one who is going to bring in a new creation, a new kingdom. And that's what this world needs, does it not? A new creation, a new kingdom. And so when we come in, we're not trying to necessarily fix up this one. We're not trying to deteriorate it either. But we're not trying to say, hey, our plan, if we could set up a theocracy, it would all work out. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying there is coming a one who is raised from the dead. He has conquered the very foes which we fear most. And we want to speak in such a way of this one and tell him, and he is coming back. And when he does, he is going to put every enemy under his feet, including death. And for all those who trust him, who bow the knee now, you will be able to partake in this new kingdom to come. Where righteousness dwells, where sin will be no more, where every tear is wiped away from your eye, you can be a part of it. But woe is the one who rejects this king. Because he is good and he is just, and if you oppose his kingdom, he will smash you. That's what Paul would come in and speak at this community center. Now, how do you think that would go over? We go down to our local community life, and we start preaching that message. I imagine it would go like verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Jump down to verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. What did these people who sided with the unbelieving Jews do? They sought how to stone them. They sought how to kill Paul. And here's what we need to understand here is they proclaimed Christ in such a way that there was a division. 
It's clearly discernible who's on whose side. And what we need to realize is if we come in with gospel ministry, some will oppose us. And I think we have struggled as evangelicals. I think this is good. We don't, we don't want to be jerks. We don't want to be unloving, unkind, harsh, abrasive. We don't want to do that. But I fear that some sense we, we've tried to, to guard ourselves from that so much that we've muffled the message. Because we know if we start saying you have to believe in Jesus, that you, you have to submit to this king who you cannot see right now, but who is coming, well, then they're not going to like us. Then they're going to think we're bigots, we're, we're judgmental, we're not loving, we're not kind. And, and here's what I want us to see is, is yeah, that will happen at least some level. Notice here, some sided with the apostles. And that's the side that we want to be on. I don't know what term we're going to be labeled in the future. It's kind of like we get new terms and then they, they, they dissolve their meaning because everybody jumps on board. Evangelical really doesn't mean anything anymore. But here's one thing that we want to make sure that we are. We are siding with the apostles. Verse 4. What does that look like? That we proclaim the message that they proclaim. That we adhere to the book that they wrote and gave to us so that it clearly defines us. That's how it's going to divide us, or at least distinguish us. All the turmoil in our country, really, even when I think about it, it's minimal compared to other countries. Sometimes we forget the goodness that, that we, we experience. So even with this negative tone, there, we're, we're worshiping freely this morning, are we not? Um, I'm able to go to the store. I'm going to be able to go to lunch. We, we should cherish the privileges that we have. But with that, there's seemingly unsettling in the political realm, economics, immigration, cultural. We need to remain upstanding citizens and at the same time proclaim a king whose name is Jesus. So this is not the time to retreat or the time to compromise. It's an opportune time to proclaim the only alternative we aren't here to ensure the prosperity of our country, but we're here to point people to the country yet to come. We're here to point people to the king who is merciful, but who is the coming judge. To show them a people who are broken and humble, but who are going to be the heirs of the world. That's what we need to be proclaiming. And in doing so, we not only proclaim Jesus, but this is naturally going to force us to call people and confront idolatry. And this is exactly what happens in verses 8 through 20. Paul has preached this message. There's a division. The rulers get together and they plot to stone Paul and Barnabas. And so verse 6, they learned of it and they fled. Okay, we're going to kill us. Let's get out of here. That sounds reasonable. They go to Lystra. And they pick up and they do the same thing. They arrive there, and, but this time there doesn't seem to be a synagogue. And so for the first time in the book of Acts, we're, we're entering territory where there isn't this Judeo background. You can come in and say, oh, the Bible says when you go to the synagogue. Well, there's no synagogue in Lystra. 
This is pure paganism, secular, no Bible. But Paul comes with the same message. He just has to tweak it, has to, uh, in a sense, tweak it, not change it, but deliver it differently. First of all, we see in verses 8 through 10 that Paul heals a lame man, confirming his message. He comes in and he sees this man sitting there. He looks at them and looks like he's preaching and teaching. He's probably found some area where dialogue is able to occur, that he's able to naturally come in and speak Christ. And this man is staring intently, and, and I can always tell when you're tracking. This is probably what's happening. You know, he sees this guy, he's like, there's one guy who's actually paying attention to what I'm saying. <laughs> he says, you have faith to make yourself well. Stand and rise. Something like that happens. And you might think, well, that man, if we could do that, people would believe. And if we were doing healings and, and all this, then people would actually believe. But something strange happens. Look in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices. And you think they're going to praise God, right? They lifted up their voices in Lyconian. And they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus who was in the temple and whose temple was at the entrance to the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Uh Uh-oh, that's not the response you probably wanted. We're getting ready to have a pagan sacrificial thing going down. They're getting ready to worship the gods of Zeus and Hermes. Say Barnabas is Zeus. I, I don't know why they identified him as this way, but Zeus is the chief of the gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon. And his son, or one of his sons, Hermes, he served as a messenger for the gods, and Paul was the spokesman. And so they took what they knew, their paganism, they don't have a Bible background, And they interpret what's going on. Paul's healing this man, doing the signs of the gods. They rightly understand this is divine. But they misappropriate it, and they appropriate it to Zeus and Hermes. Now I want you to look at Paul and Barnabas' response. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. They were devastated. This was horrific. They were broken. They were urgent about the idolatry that was about to take place. In the ancient world, you would rip your clothes in mourning when when something horrific would have happened. And they noticed they did not retreat, but they ran into the crowd. And what did they say? hey, we really appreciate it. You, you know, you've, 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 you've sort of got a glimpse of what we're trying to do here. You've obviously seen the best of us. Um, you know, we're going to just live our lives faithfully before you and hopefully you'll see Jesus. So what they said? No. Verse 15, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. That's gospel. 
So Luke doesn't give us the sermon, but we see here that we've preached Jesus to you. That means it's going to change your life. That means you can't continue to look like yourselves anymore and continue to just practice the pagan rituals that you've done. No, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain, and some of your translations have worthless things, to a living God. You know what Paul's saying? Your little stone statues and wooden idols, they're worthless. Hollywood, you're worthless. Sex, drugs, money, you're worthless. We don't care about those things like you do. Turn from serving those things, the applause of the world, the accolades of fame. The building up of yourself, it's worthless. And serve the living God. That's what we do. And he goes on and he begins to explain, and this is, a, this is probably where we need to go with people. Serve the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You know that air you're breathing. Serve the one who supplies it to you. Oh, the food that you pick up at the market, the one who causes the rain to fall on the soil and gives the crops from their proper seasons. Serve that God, the creator over all things. Paul begins to explain to them a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding that there is one true God. His name is Jesus. He's the creator of all things, and you need to submit yourself to him. You're serving vain idols. We're too sophisticated for that here in our culture. We just worship people. Doesn't mean we can't appreciate them. I mean, we just saw another literally idol, cultural icon, prince, go down. And you see the the responses. It's similar to flowers and candles and sacrifice to these Godlike ones. I remember when I heard it, the news, I, I remember thinking, wow, he was only 57? He lived and had everything that the world could possibly have given him. And yet our culture says, man, that's a life worth living. That doesn't mean we degrade the man, but we say, there's something better. There's someone better. The idols that our culture give you, they only can last best a half century, maybe a century. And then they die and they go to the grave never to rise again. He goes on. He says, in past generations, he, meaning God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He's talking about the unique nature that Israel had God appear to them, deliver them from Egypt, give them the law. And there's a sense in which God allowed the nations to just do their deal. But that's changed since Jesus has come. He no longer allows the nations just to wander in idleness and in ignorance. 
And even though before Christ he had not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains and from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But now that Jesus has come, we come to give you good news. God is no longer just going to let you wander and do your own thing. He has spoken, and so we are here to tell you what he has said. It's interesting, verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They didn't convert, at least most of them didn't. Don't do this. No, no, we need to do this. No, no, don't. That's not what we're about. We're drawing a line in the sand. We're different. And if you want any part of this message, you must become one of us. Well, how'd that go? Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Okay, that's, that's not comforting. Here's what I want us to see. Although we may not be apostles, we aren't. We're not able to perform signs and wonders like they do. But we do give testimony to our message through our good deeds and love for one another. The church has been established by the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are, we are the evidence of their work, of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We point people to what's going on here. The love for one another, the service, the, the loving our neighbor as ourself. However, we cannot be content for the world just to look at us and, our, and, and just appreciate what we do. Oh, that's a sweet little community. They love each other. That's great. We live in an increasingly secular world, a world without God and society. Our culture worships fame, sex, and riches. We are people of excess in every possible way, and we give selfies about it all day. I don't know who double fists the selfie, but, <laughs> but that's, that would be an extreme. But as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must not just serve our neighbor. We need to do that. But we also need to urgently call them to repentance. We want to call them from serving themselves, from pursuing the uncertainty of riches, from seeking the applause of the world, and from the destructive lies of personal autonomy and freedom. We do it with true concern and true love, not out of hate and, and as if we are wiser and we figured it all out. No, we are just those who have been shown mercy, and we want them to receive the same mercy. When we do this, persecution will come. Trouble will find us. And literally, it found Paul. Here, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. The trouble that started... In other cities, they are literally pursuing Paul, hunting him down just as Paul used to do. And find the Christians in those areas so they may kill them. And this is where I want to just maybe make a pastoral note. Trouble seeks us out. We don't have to seek it out. That's a helpful thing to remember even when we engage the culture. We aren't trying to stir up trouble. 
Some people do Christianity in a way to stir up trouble. We don't want to do that. We want to do it in such a way that it has to find us. We're just, we're just showing our cards. Let's put it that way. The unbelievers persuade the masses and they try to kill Paul. They thought they did. Now you might be looking at this and say, okay, Chase, this, I, I, I'm revoking my membership. I'm going to a church where we don't have to worry about these type of things. I'm going to lead us down a path of proclaiming Jesus and call, confronting idolatry. And that looks like it's just going to cause trouble. I want to be somewhere where we're going to make an impact. I'm not saying you can't make an impact anywhere else but here. I'm just, but if we're going to follow this path, we shouldn't be surprised when trouble finds us. But, look at the good news here. It does get better. Look in verse 20. And this leads us to our third component of gospel ministry. It produces disciples. All this trouble, and look what happens. But when the disciples gathered about him, this is Paul laying on the ground as if he's dead, he rose up, and entered the city. Now, where did these disciples come from? <laughs> He's literally lying dead in the streets. At least everybody thinks. Some have believed. Paul gave his life up for people. God says, I'm not done with you. And they're standing around thinking, oh no, what has happened to him? We've believed. Whoa, hey, come on. What does he do? He rose up, well, he got bandaged and cared for by the disciples there, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to another city. Let's do this again. Luke doesn't go into all the details. It's probably very similar, but verse 21, look at what happened. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. This is what happens. They preach the good news, they proclaim Christ, they confront idolatry, and many disciples are made. This gets really crazy. They returned to Lystra. <laughs> what? Let's go back there. That was a pleasant experience. <laughs> and let's go to Iconium. You remember when the leaders got the important people in town that conspired to stone us? Let's go back there too. And let's go to Antioch where we got run out of town as well. Why did they do that? Because there were disciples there. Through all the chaos, through all the trouble, became disciples. And so 22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to what? Continue in the faith. We need to hear that. As the world begins to crumble, as we begin to waver in what is going on, hey, keep cool, remain calm. God's got this. Let's just go back to his word and see what we're supposed to do. And that's what we're doing today continue in the faith we just remain faithful we don't have to worry about the results we just remain faithful but look at what paul says how does he encourage them to continue in the faith he reminds them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god wow okay i was speaking to somebody in our church last week or two weeks ago we we're talking about these things 
kind of going through Job and, and trying to understand this, this reality of suffering in the life of a believer. And, and it's as if a light went on and this individual said to me, so Chase, are, are you telling me that we shouldn't be surprised if trouble comes? I said, bingo. You got, actually, we should probably be surprised when it doesn't. And again, this isn't go find it out. It's, it's going to find you. If we're Jesus people, it will find us. But Paul says this is part of the plan. And through the tribulation, disciples are going to be made if we remain faithful. See, this is the road of Jesus, which was the road to the cross. But even in the death of Christ came the resurrection. And that's where the power of God was put on display. Three minutes. Let's just look here. Look at what happens, verse 23. Their job's not done yet. They got to leave these churches, but they got to leave them equipped. And how do they look equipped? When they had appointed elders for them in every church, pastors, a plurality of pastors in every church. There it is. Why? Because it's hard work to continue in the faith. And we need pastors who are going to shepherd us and care for us and love us and remind us and point us back to the book. No, no, don't get distracted. Right now we're in a transition here at Oak Park. We've had as many as seven pastors at one point. Now we're down to three, but we're in the process. If you were at our family gathering um, in uh, this last month, we introduced two new um, elder candidates, Jim McAllister and Nathan Hunter. Um, we're going to be, you're going to be seeing more of them. They're going to come up and introduce themselves in the coming Sundays this month and lead us in pastoral prayer. You're going to start seeing them in the rotation. Uh, they're going to start visiting some of your community groups. We're going to have a Q&A um, here in June family business meeting. And you're going to get to see these men who we're putting forward to you as elders to give oversight and care for us so that we may continue the work of gospel ministry. Last component is that they praise God for it. Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch. This is the, the first Antioch, chapter 11 and chapter 13. And look at what they do when they arrive. Verse 27. When they arrive and gather the church together, they had a members meeting, and they declared all that God had done with them. They didn't say, hey, well, let me tell you how awesome it was when I, well, let me tell you about all the people who came to speak when I, no, they declared all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith. Brothers and sisters, that's what we want to say. We want to look at the world, and, 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 and I mean, really, when we're talking about this, it looks impossible, doesn't it? Like, who, want, who, who wants to listen to this? This message is, no way. And so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And then we may say, wow, a great God we serve. And so, what does that look like for us? It looks like, Jumping in, right? Some of you are sitting on the sidelines. You come here Sunday after Sunday. You sit. And you leave. And you come back next Sunday. I'm glad you're here. 
but it's time to get in the game. It's time to start serving. And that's going to look like different things for different people. I'm not saying that we're all the Apostle Paul or church planters like Paul and Barnabas was, but I'm expecting some of you to be some. But it looks like serving in our children's ministry or student ministry on Wednesday nights when community comes here. We might need just parents to minister to the parents who come. At VBS, Joshua's got uh, some of us working uh, are going to be in the lobby with the particular purpose of ministering to the, the parents and following up. We need some more of you. So if you're like, kids aren't my thing, I hope adults are, so come on. Think about community groups. Come talk to Jamin if you need to get involved in one. Or we need some new leaders. We need to put some new ones in different places so that we can shed light in those neighborhoods and those areas of our church, our community that we're not present. Go talk to Jamin. Or minister to the poor. Talk to Corey Bledsoe. Many opportunities, and there are opportunities yet to come where you are uniquely placed in a situation that none of the rest of us are, but we're going to say, invite us in. Some of you students, I'm not just talking college, but certainly college, but high school, middle school, you can go where none of us can, the classroom. And you can reach out to those people whom we cannot. And you can bring them in where there are pastors there to disciple. So that we can say, wow, look at all the things that God has done. Let's pray and we'll continue in worship. Dear Lord, you're merciful, you're gracious, you're kind. And Lord, as we see the, shift and the, the, the sifting sand beneath our feet, Kingdoms of this world come and they go. They have appearance of strength and might, but Lord, we know that they will all crumble. But Lord, we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom whose origin is of heavenly domain, who will come down and you will renovate this earth and you will eliminate all the impurities. And Lord, it will be like the Garden of Eden Accept no potential for sin. Lord, may we get excited about that. And may that excitement propel us to tell our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers, our jogging partner, our teammate, about the good news of the risen Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.